0: a series called, You Asked For It. And the whole way this thing has worked is you have submitted your questions about faith, about the Bible, about God, and then we've just been systematically approaching and addressing your questions. And and some of your questions we've kind of lumped into categories where uh, we've been addressing things like end-of-life issues. And so... Three weeks back, we talked about end-of-life issues, questions about uh, suicide, what happens when I die. All those kinds of things were addressed when we kicked this series off three weeks back. Over the last two weeks, we did a kind of a two-parter on um, sexual sin, uh, especially pertaining to same-sex attraction, homosexuality, gender issues. We didn't get into all those details over those two weeks, but we covered a lot of territory in that time last week and the week before that. And today we're jumping into questions that you've submitted, kind of just generally categorized about questions about the Bible. Because some of you have been reading the Bible, and as you're reading, you're like, wow, what does this mean? Or what is this about? Or I heard this thing, is it true? Or where in the Bible do I find this thing about? And so uh, today I want to start addressing questions that you've submitted related to Scripture, related to the passages of Scripture in the Bible or stories in the Bible. And in addressing a topic like this, which I think is very helpful, because that tells me some of you out there are students of the Word, you're wanting to grow in the knowledge of Scripture. what are the things we have to understand. As we approach this topic, as as believers in Jesus Christ, we look for answers within Scripture because we believe that the Bible is the authoritative rule of our faith and of how we live our life. And one of the things we have to understand as followers of Jesus is this is the Word of God expressed to us, revealed to us, of how to live righteously, how to navigate through life, And one of the things that are often, uh, I I guess, kind of uh, accusations against the church is that we can only defend our faith based on Scripture. Well, and the reality is. As Christians, what else would we be basing our faith on outside of Scripture, right? I mean, we don't. There is no other Word of God. This is the inspired Word of God, and we build our life upon this. And so I, I know that for some of you maybe who are kind of out there and you're thinking, you're saying, can't you answer some of these questions outside of Scripture? And My answer is no, I won't, because I believe that Scripture gives us plenty of material to answer a lot of the questions of life in some very real ways, and so today, to understand that, we have to affirm the authority of Scripture, because if we're going to answer these questions from Scripture, we have to know that Scripture is authoritative. It has an authority to it. In fact, Paul addresses that with Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor. He was in a rather secular culture, and um, he was given instruction concerning the importance of the Word of God from Paul. And this is what Paul said. 2 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16. Paul declares this, that all Scripture is God-breathed. So that tells me a way, as I look at that, it's not man-inspired. This is not man's origin of an idea about God. It is actually God-breathed. And what that means is that men who wrote Scripture were inspired by the Holy Spirit. God-breathed is the same word we would sense with the Holy Spirit enlightening men as they wrote, inspiring them as they wrote. The breath of God inspiring men by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. So it's God-breathed. So therefore, because it's God-breathed and not man-originated, it's useful for teaching for rebuking, for correcting, and for training for a purpose. What is it? In righteousness. That as we read Scripture, we might be e- equipped to become righteous people. Verse 17, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. One of the things that concerns me about Christianity today is the, is the amount of people who really do not get into Scripture. Maybe they read like a verse a day, and I'm glad you're at least starting there, but we need to be people who are willing to get into Scripture and read it for ourselves. Maybe you grew up in a faith tradition where you were told, you know, don't read the Bible, let the priest come and interpret Scripture for you, because they're the only ones who are anointed enough to interpret Scripture for you. In other words, you're all spiritual idiots, and you have to come and listen to somebody decide that for you. The, The answer is, no, you don't. The same Holy Spirit that guided those men as they wrote can speak to your heart as you read if you are pursuing Scripture reading by faith and with belief in your heart. And so I want us to be people who get into Scripture and begin to read for ourselves what it says. And so my challenge is, yes, maybe you don't feel equipped for issues in life or questions that come up about your faith because you're not in the Word of God. So the challenge is get in it. There are so many resources to help you do that today In fact, if you own a smart device, you have no excuse to not be in the Bible because there is a Bible app for you. In fact, I'm going to let you know that the YouVersion Bible app is something that we encourage you to use because our notes, if you go into the menu and live events, our notes are right there. Look for Neighborhood Church and follow along with today's message as well because I got a lot of questions about the Bible. We're going to approach very quickly and throw a lot of scripture at you. So you might want to refer back to this in the Bible app or go to our website, AlbanyNC.org, and you go to Messages, and you'll see our message notes there as well. So as we begin to look at these questions, understand that the Bible is where we go to find the answers to these questions, all right? So the first question is this, when God spoke at the beginning, why did everything appear? So this is a question about creation, and and while I don't have time, because this can be a whole seminar all on its own talking about creation versus evolution. Uh, Let me just say this. There are great resources for you as Christians out there to equip you when it comes to creation, all right? If you have not yet picked up any Lee Strobel books or any books by J. Warner Wallace... Um, if you're really kind of uh, into deep reading, there are other ones I can refer to you later, uh, but some of those are like, uh, you know, help me understand, um, because it's written by some of the best uh, apologists out there. Ravi Zacharias is another one who's written on various things about our faith. But I just want to encourage you to dig deeper in that. But the question pertains to when God spoke at the beginning, why did everything appear? And what we have to understand is that when we look at Genesis chapter 1, and it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, what we have to understand is that nothing existed prior to the spoken word of God to create. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it says that the earth was formless or, or, or void. And it says the Holy Spirit was hovering over the face of the water. What we can understand about Genesis chapter 1 as we look at the account of creation is that there are times where, where the creation events are broken up by this statement, God said, and then boom, something happened. God said, and boom, something happened. And what happens is that God has such... Such an authority to his word that when he speaks, it creates out of nothing. And what's hard for us to understand is because we only can think about creating with something that already exists, right? We take mud and we can make something with it. Or we take wood and make a house. We make out of things already made. But God in his power and his authority of the word speaks and that which was not becomes something. And the way it happened was, at least with speculation, is that it says that the Holy Spirit hovered over the face of the waters of the formless world, and when God spoke the power of His Word, the Holy Spirit, in conjunction with the Father and the Son, brought everything into being. In fact, this is what David touches on in Psalm 33, 6. Listen to the words, by the word of the Lord." the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. That word breath actually is the same word used of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. That word is ruach, which means the breath of God, which is also the title often used for the Holy Spirit. Verse 9, "'For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm.'" Now, I know that as we approach this, we're going, well, that doesn't make scientific sense. Of course it doesn't, because science is a study of things that already are, okay? When you get into this, this is theology. I mean, you can't, you can't always apply science to this issue. Now, there are great apologists who take a look at creation very scientifically and bring some great answers to it, but John 1 This is what's said about Jesus, the the Logos, the Word made flesh, right? But listen to what it says in verse 3. Through him, all things were made. And to bring that point clear, it says this. Without him, nothing was made that had been made. So while we can't get it, aren't you so glad that we serve a God and have a spirit of God that dwells in us that when God speaks, power happens. And I'm just so glad that that's what happens in our redemption story. The Holy Spirit brings newness of life to you. The same Holy Spirit that hovered over the face of the water at creation inhabits your hearts and inhabits your life, and you become a new creation by the love and power of God. Isn't that good news for us? Absolutely. And then in Romans... Although the occasion is about Abraham and Sarah and how they had been barren and basically they were old and the likelihood of pregnancy was impossible, right? So this is the context. But listen to the words of Paul as he writes about this. Verse 17 of Romans 4. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father, this is Abraham, in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God, and here's the part I want you to hear, the God who gives life the dead and calls into being things that were not. So again, difficult for us to understand because we're people who look at creating things with created things. So how do we approach this? We have to approach this with our heart. I remember talking to somebody once about this idea of the science and even the philosophy and trying to bring all of that to faith. And I said, look, there comes a point where you have to make a leap. Whether there has to be belief or faith in your heart. And that's what Hebrews challenges us. Hebrews 11 verse 3 says this, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. In other words, there was nothing. But by faith we can understand that God is the kind of God who speaks, and His spoken word carries so much power that things happen. So how did it happen? God spoke. And aren't you glad that it did? And we get to enjoy the benefits of it. But this is the part about it. It happened because God spoke. And that is the authority and power of our God. Next question that's kind of similar to Genesis is this question, which some of you probably have never thought of before, but somebody did, and I wanted to address it because I thought it was a good point. Did Adam have a first wife named Lilith Before Eve. Now, to address this question, I think we have to basically answer it first and then go into detail. The answer is no. Uh, Adam didn't have a first wife named Lilith. But there is uh, mythology around the story, and that's how it's kind of come into history. Um, and, And although all the legends kind of vary. In how it goes out, here's the root idea about this whole thing concerning Lilith. They all agree on this, that this Lilith left Adam because she did not want to submit to him, right? So what we'd see here is even before... Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, there was rebellion and sin. So already biblically, this is already out of context and already unbiblical in in the origin of this story. But the whole point was, she wouldn't submit to his leadership. And according to legends, Lilith was an evil, wicked woman who committed adultery then with Satan and produced evil creatures. And these evil creatures did evil in the world. And so that is the mythology behind it. Now, the reason it becomes a biblical question is because if you read the new revised standard version of the Bible, and you get to Isaiah chapter 34, verse 14, and this is the only translation, one of the few that has this word Lilith in it. And it goes like this, "...there too Lilith shall repose." And somehow that, even though Adam is not even mentioned anywhere in the context of that, nor the creation account, that becomes proof. Well, it's in the Bible. Little is in the Bible. Well, translators who look at these languages, look at the context of Scripture, have defined it in most reputable now translations like the English Standard Version, the NIV. There's a bunch of great ones who are very scholarly based as screech owl. All right, so that's not even sounding like Lilith, but it's got, you know, it's loosely in in the original Hebrew, and so therefore they've built this case about how that's biblical now that there was a Lilith. Well, there wasn't, okay? So, um, but it became popular, and here's why. It became popular among some of the radical feminist movements, this idea of a Lilith, for obvious reasons. Here was a woman who refused to submit to the headship of Adam. And so that becomes a poster child for radical feminist movements. Uh, But it's a myth outside of the Word of God, and so there is no Lilith. But here's what's interesting, and I I challenge you, if you want to look more into it, you you can look online and find some of the origin of these myths. But the point is, it's not biblical. And so we're answering questions from the Bible, and Eve was created to be the helpmate for Adam. And that's the biblical standard that we have. Um, Next question, where in the Bible does it say to give your brother a help out or a help up, not a help out? Um, Some of you may have heard that term, you know, give a brother a help up, not a help out. And that's not in the Bible, okay? That at least not stated in that way. But there are concepts in Scripture about this topic, about helping somebody for a greater good for them. Sometimes you know that when you help somebody, you're not really helping them. You ever notice that before? We as a church are very careful about who we help, especially in the area of benevolence, because sometimes we're helping somebody and just simply enabling. We want to help in a way that's helpful. We want to give a help up, not a handout or a help out. So uh, here's, here's some verses that I think we need to look at as Christians, because it is easy for us to become insensitive, isn't it? I mean, there are real needs around us, but we've become almost blind to it because, you know, we've become less and less others aware and more self-consumed. So here we go. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility. Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. That's certainly within the church body, but that certainly could be in how we view others that are in need. Don't just look at our own interests but the interest of others. First John chapter 3, verse 17 says this, If anyone has material possession and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And what I always encourage folks is, great, I want you to be generous givers, but let's make sure we're giving in ways that are smart, if you want to help people, for example, who find themselves temporarily homeless, then let's support organizations that are trying to help people back onto a path of self-sustained living. Giving handouts to the corner aren't necessarily ways to make that Happen. A lot of, at least in the city of Albany, a lot of reasons that uh, they've been discouraged to give to what they call panhandlers are because these panhandlers are not the same people who live over at Helping Hands or some other place. A lot of times, to be in Helping Hands, you are forbidden to panhandle. If you discover you are, you're kicked out of the shelter. They're trying to repurpose people's lives, help them get careers, help them get established. And so, when you help somebody in that way, you're continuing to enable a lifestyle of asking for help, right? So Proverbs tells us this, uh, 327, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to act. And it certainly is within our power to act in ways to help people, to help our community, Uh, By the way, you can always give to our church benevolence fund, and we come alongside families at point of need and try to help them in ways that are helpful, all right? So if you want to be charitable and give, you can also give through the church to the benevolence account, and that will help people. Um, But my challenge is make sure you're giving and supporting reputable organizations in our community that are trying to help up people, not help them out. Now, the Bible does talk about this idea, because I think the question really deals with how can I help somebody in a way that actually helps them? All right, not just enabling them to stay in their problems or to stay in their trouble. So here's one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And the context for this is really a pretty, uh, you know, it's more complex, but I'll try to make it easy. In, in these Greek cities like Thessalonica, when Christians became Christians, all right, when people became Christians, they would often lose their job. And the reason for that is most of the time in these cities, there were different various guilds, we might call them unions today, that you worked for. If you were in the steel guild or if you were in stone or whatever it was, you had unions or guilds that you worked within. And part of being a part of that guild was worshiping at the temple of the god of that region or the goddess of that region. And so to be a part of this guild, part of the celebrations and gatherings would be tipping a hat toward or worshiping or giving an offering to these false gods. And when people became Christians, they were like, hey, I can't do that. I can't bow to these false gods. And so they wouldn't participate. And guess what would happen to them? They would become jobless. They would not be allowed to be a part of that guild. And if they weren't part of the union, then they weren't finding other means of employment. So what would happen? The church would pull together their resources and try to help each other uh, make ends meet, provide for food and, and provide the basic necessities for, the, for everybody to function together as Christians. Um, so when we look at this verse, when Paul came to Thessalonica, he was talking about this idea of this, this, this common living, this, this common sharing, and this is what he said in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who was unwilling to work Shall not eat. So even within the church benevolence or the common um, wealth, so to speak, of the church, you wouldn't just sit back and receive. You had to work. You had to be a contributor to, the, to either the, the purpose of the church or something. So this is kind of that idea of not just enabling people to work off the system, but actually do help for them in good ways. Next question: Can you address Mark 4:10 to 13, which we'll look at here in a moment? And 433 where Jesus agrees to disclose the meaning of his parables to his disciples, but hide them from everyone else. It seems inconsistent with John 3.17 and other passages of salvation. Um, And so here's the passage, Mark 4.10, we'll go to verse 12. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him, being Jesus, about the parables. And he said to them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables, so that they may be ever seeing and never perceiving. And by the way, he's quoting from prophet Isaiah here. If your Bible is is in quotes, He's, he's quoting Isaiah. And ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, doesn't that sound kind of exclusive? I mean, it sounds like, well, why wouldn't we want them to turn and be forgiven? Why wouldn't we want folks to understand the message of the gospel? So this sounds like a salvation issue, but let's kind of break it down for a moment. First of all, what's a parable? A parable is a story using something very understandable by everybody. Usually it was some kind of an earthly example that had a spiritual or heavenly meaning. Generally, Jesus taught parables to talk about the kingdom of heaven. And so he might say things like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he tells a parable, something that you understand. Maybe you recognize the parable of the sower. It was about a gentleman who went out to sow seed, and the seed landed on different soils, and different things happened to that seed depending on the soil it was landed on. That was actually the context in which this particular this event is taking place, is the parable of the sower. And so they, the thing about parables, though, is they were kind of confusing at times for the people of the day. Now, you have to understand, not many of them that followed Jesus were highly educated people. Some of them were the marginalized people who didn't have a lot of religion, or at least they weren't necessarily totally schooled up in all things biblical. And so they would be people that Jesus would teach these parables to, they kind of still go, I don't get it. Kind of like what some of you do when you open up Scripture, maybe read a parable and go, I don't understand. I don't get what he's trying to say. And that's what was happening. And so it seemed like, why would Jesus teach something that nobody could seem to understand? As he describes, Mark describes here in this gospel, is that the disciples would come to Jesus later and say, all right, help us understand this. So what's going on here? Why would Jesus seem to have a secret knowledge that was only for his close immediate followers? So let me just take that one on first, because there are actually religious organizations built upon a secret knowledge. Um, This is not an allowance for secret society or secret-based organizations to gather together where you have somebody who dispenses secret information to to a select group of people. What is happening here is the word secret that's actually used in Mark talks about not necessarily things that were mysterious, but it's actually an emphasis on God disclosing to people something they hadn't previously known. And what was basically happening here in Mark's account, the secret, quote, the secret was that the kingdom of heaven was coming in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we look at that and go, well, that's no secret. We all know that Jesus came. Well, yeah, we're looking at it from this side backwards, right? And we see Jesus coming, death, resurrection, and we have the whole Bible look back through in the New Testament and say, yeah, no brainer, that's not a secret. Well, to the people in the day, guess what? It was a pretty big deal and a pretty big secret because nobody saw this coming. I mean, there were certainly prophecies about a coming Messiah, and those who knew the prophecies should have known it was Jesus, but they're the very ones who did not identify that he was the Messiah, wouldn't believe it. So what this really comes down to when it comes to these insiders and outsiders is this. There were people like the disciples who were earnest seekers of truth. And as Jesus taught, they would lean in. And maybe they wouldn't get it all, but their faith in Jesus and their desire for truth would drive them to want to know more. But then there were outsiders, as he would call them, and these were referenced back in Mark 3. These outsiders are the teachers of the law who did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. It was his own family who did not believe that he was the Son of God. These are the ones that because of their skepticism, because of their resistance, their hardened hearts, even when Jesus would teach, they wouldn't get it. And what makes this point clear about how our heart approaches the Word of God is the prophecy that Jesus refers to. The prophet Isaiah, and we're going to see it here in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. He's quoting something that actually was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, and this prophecy was spoken at a time in Israel when they had continually. "...continually turned their backs on, their backs on God and worshipped foreign gods." They worshipped idols. And God would raise up prophets who would try to speak to correct them. They might repent, and then they would go right back to it again. And God made a promise to them in Deuteronomy before they even entered their land of promise... And it was this, if you continue to turn your back on me and serve the foreign gods, you will lose this land of promise. You will be kicked out of the promised land. So there was some contingency to the land of promise. They live in God's covenant, which we see in the Old Testament, first five books of the Bible. They live within God's covenant. They will have the blessing of the promised land. But they continue to deny him and turn their backs on him. They will lose that. So what's happened is now they've gone so far to this point where they've continued to reject God that now God is going to serve the other side of his promise, which was, you will lose the land. So, prophet Isaiah 6, he said, this is God speaking to Isaiah, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Now, what I want you to hear is there's If there could be such a thing, there was sarcasm in the Word of God here. Because the point was, you aren't hearing. I mean, they're hearing it, but they're not really perceiving it. It's not getting to their heart. They're seeing it, but they're not perceiving it. It's not getting into their hearts. And verse 10, make the heart of this people calloused. That's what was happening. It's not like create it to be. Their hearts already were. Their hearts were calloused. They make their ears dull and close their eyes, which they'd already been doing. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Now, this this is the part that sounds like, don't let them do this because I don't want them to be healed. That's not the point. The point is these people have made decision after decision after decision to continue to reject God. And it's now become pointless. Even though he commissions Isaiah to preach, he said, look, they're not going to listen to you. They are not going to listen to you. Their hearts are hard. Go ahead and preach, but they're not going to hear you. And that's exactly what happened. So Jesus uses that to say, as he's teaching us parables, he's looking around. And he sees people who are hungry for truth and who lean in. And he sees people who are skeptics, whose hearts are hardened to the message he has to speak. And he says there's insiders and there's outsiders. And what determines that is your heart. Now, some of you know people in your family or friends that are hard-hearted when it comes to the things of God. They're like, whatever, right? Is Is this true? Do you have people who are skeptical about religion or the Bible or any of that stuff? Absolutely. Most of us know somebody in our family tree who doesn't buy into this whole thing. But you had a point in your life when you leaned in, didn't you? Or maybe you're there today and you're kind of leaning in because you heard truth and then you applied faith. Can I just tell you that faith and belief becomes the key? that moves us from outsiders to, quote, insiders. It's about the condition of your heart. And unless the Holy Spirit awakens this in your heart and you begin to respond to it, then you will continue to reject it. Now, why is this important? Jesus needed these things to happen. Let me explain. One, he needed believers who would believe his message The disciples, because he was going to die and go to heaven, right? So he needed some people to continue the message. So he took time to teach the disciples, but there was also a group of people who needed to say, crucify him, crucify him, right? So if everybody believed he was the Son of God, then who would who would crucify the Son of God, right? So isn't it interesting how God's plan unfolded? There were those who would learn and the church would be established and grow, and we would still have the gospel today, and then there were those who were used so to speak, by the hardness of their heart to allow the redemption of our own sins, the cross of Jesus Christ to happen. What's interesting is in the book of Acts, some of those same skeptics might have actually become believers. Because in Acts, it talks about how there were among the priests, those who came to faith in Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Religious elite people coming to believe that he actually was the Messiah, of course, after he died and rose again. So, There are passages I don't have time to get into, but I do want to um, basically read a little bit of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Bill, if you got that passage on the screen or the reference to it, Paul really dives into this because Paul was one of those skeptics, wasn't he? He did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah until he's on a road to Damascus and the Holy Spirit knocks him off his horse and boom, you know, he's all of a sudden there and he believes, Right? Look at what he says. There's just some snippets out of, you can write this down and reference the whole thing letter, but he says this, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory. Who was that mystery? Jesus, the son of God who came to die on a cross for us before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There's those outsiders who didn't believe it and ultimately would be the ones that would demand his crucifixion. Verse 12, what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. What does this mean? Unless the Holy Spirit begins to be at work in our hearts and the Word of God in our ears, we won't won't lean into the truth. And you know people today that are still there. What do we do? We pray for them. We pray for your hard-hearted friends that God's Holy Spirit would awaken their heart to the truth. Otherwise, even the clearest gospel message won't make sense to them. Some of you in the room, it took several preachings of the gospel for you to respond to it. Because you weren't getting it. You weren't ready to pay attention to it. And that's the whole point. What heart am I bringing to this passage? Next question is this. In the song God gives and takes away, that song is actually called Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. In that song, my question is, Why is if he gives you something, why would he take it away? So let me just kind of give you a, a quick one. Because maybe you feel like God has given you something and then had taken it away. And you're kind of frustrated at God because he has taken it away from you. Well, what he's referencing in the song, it's a great song really about finding um, joy in all circumstances, good and bad. But he referenced the story of Job. And in Job, he lost everything. And the reason he lost everything was God allowed Satan to test Job. Because God knew there was one man named Job whose heart was fully devoted to him. He said, have you considered my servant Job? And so Satan asks for permission to have everything basically taken away from Job. And this is where the story, Job 1, verse 20, begins. After Job lost everything, at this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, "'Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart.'" The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So all these events, they sound horrific, right? If this guy is so favored by God, why is he losing everything? And maybe that's where you've been. God, I've been following you. I've been loving you. I've been trying to serve you and and, and support the church and all these things. Why are you taking these things away from me? In this context, it was to demonstrate the integrity, the devotion, and the love of Job. Because God knew what was in Job's heart. And nobody else saw it. In fact, what did they accuse Job of? You must have sinned. You must have done something to totally make God mad at you. No, he was being faithful. And he lost everything. And in the end of the story, of course, we know it was all restored to Job. What's my point? What we can learn from this is that what Job already told us, we got nothing when we came into this world, but we have nothing when we leave. Everything we do have comes from the hand of God. He's our provider. And because he's our provider, it's his right to give and or take away. And sometimes he takes away because we're being tested. Sometimes he takes away because we've leaned too much dependency on something besides him. And once that crumbles, you discover the, the futility of putting your trust in something that is not eternal, something that's not really a provider. And so the whole point here is what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will. So yeah, there are times God may give and God may take away. It might sound harsh, but we have to see it from a different perspective. Job got it. Eventually, when he knew he was faithful and would bless the Lord in the midst of whatever happens, we don't build our faith on our circumstances, do we? Our faith grows through our circumstances. We don't base it on our circumstances. Final question, and then we're going to be done for today. And the question simply stated this, Romans, or sorry, Revelation three fifteen to 16. That was the question that was submitted. So I'm assuming the question was, what is this about? All right? Um, and so here it is, Revelation 3.15. This is what it says in the Bible. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, why would God say something like that? Well, let me just give you the, as quick as I can the context. All right, so this is one of the seven letters that God told John in Revelation to write to seven churches in Asia Minor. One of those churches was called Laodicea, and that is the church to which this was written. Now, interesting fact about this letter. When God would write the letters, He would often use something from within their culture to lift as an example and speak to it. So let me give you what He's talking about here. Laodicea is basically sandwiched between two cities, Hierapolis and Colossae. And Hierapolis is known for its hot springs. Anybody enjoy some hot springs occasionally? You get to go sit in them, and maybe you have a hot tub. You don't have a spring anymore, but you have a hot tub. And that's the essence of it. They had these wonderful hot springs in Hierapolis. And then down south in Colossa, they had these wonderful cool springs. And I've personally enjoyed some fresh, cool spring water, and it's like incredible how it tastes. It's purest form coming right out of the ground, just drink it right out of the ground. It's wonderful. But Laodicea didn't have either. In fact, its water was bad. And so they would often duct the water, the cold water from Colossae and the hot water from Heropolis to Laodicea. But what would happen in transit between the two cities? The hot water would become lukewarm. The cold water would become lukewarm. So every time you drank water in Laodicea, you drink it and go, and spit it out. Because it was like, this is not good water. It's like lukewarm. Now, anybody ever had a drink and you thought it was going to be cold or maybe you thought it was going to be hot and it was lukewarm and the first thing you thought about doing was spitting this thing out? That's what's happening. So it was happening in a very real way in Laodicea. And God just lifts that example and says, this is what is happening to your heart. You are messing with compromise. I wish you were hot on fire for me, or that you were cold? Because if you were at least cold, you understand, hey, I'm in a place where I need something. But because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth, much like you would do when you got a lukewarm taste. Here's, here's what he's saying. There are, biblically, three spiritual temperatures of the heart. There's the heart on fire for God. In fact, in, in Luke 24, after the resurrection of Christ, on the road to Emmaus, there were some disciples that were walking with Jesus but didn't know it was him. But later they discovered it was, and they said, weren't our hearts burning within us? And there's a sense of, of God's fire within our hearts. But the Bible also referenced cold hearts. In fact, in, in Matthew, I believe it is, Matthew 24, it talks about how the love of many will grow cold. But there's also a lukewarm hearts, which we just heard about in Revelation 3. And what God is challenging His church, and I believe especially the church today in America we are living in Laodicea. We are becoming in a consumeristic American church in general that's neither hot nor cold. And it's a dangerous place to be because lukewarm means I have enough religion to let myself off the hook, but I'm passionless in my pursuit of God. And some of you, that might be where you are. You have enough religion, enough churchiness in you that you feel like you're okay, but you're passionless. And he's saying, I challenge you to not compromise, but to be on fire for me. And I want to be the kind of person who goes out burning for Jesus, if you know what I mean. But compromise, here's the thing about this. It takes intention to not compromise. You know what's interesting about keeping hot water hot? It takes attention, doesn't it? It takes attention and intention to keep hot water hot. Just like it does to keep cold water cold. Lukewarm happens naturally. Naturally. It happens in an uninspected, unintended environment. And friends, many of us, we don't take a look at our faith. We don't evaluate our faith. We don't attend to our faith. And we wonder why we begin to feel cold in our love for him. It's because of compromise. So maybe today as we've dealt with these questions, maybe for you you're kind of going, man, some of these are speaking to me. I I feel like maybe a little bit like the church at Laodicea. Maybe I'm in that place where I've compromised. Or maybe I'm angry at God because he gave and and then he takes takes away. Or maybe for some of you, your heart's a bit hard to the gospel. And maybe you're here today because somebody said we're talking about questions and invited you to come because we're exploring questions of the Bible. And, and maybe you have to understand today that you got to approach this not just with your head. God welcomes your head, but you got to bring your heart as well. Faith opens the door to understanding the Holy Spirit, enlightening God's word in our hearts. So I'd like us to bow our heads and close our eyes as we conclude today's questions. And I just want you to know we got more coming up. We're going to be talking about, um, is it okay for Christians to drink alcohol? Uh, We're going to be talking about um, forgiveness issues. I mean, there's some great questions coming around the corner. So I just want to encourage you to come back for more of these. But today, I just feel like we need to respond to the Word of God because it is useful in correcting, rebuking, and training. Maybe for you, it's, it's been a rebuke today because you felt something from the Word of God that just pricked your heart. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here saying, Kelly, something today really has just got my attention and, and I, need to, I need to pray about this. Just raise a hand and saying, yeah, something today spoke to me, Kelly. Just raise a hand. Thank you. Anybody else? Anybody else? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word because Hebrews says it's living and active. So I thank you that it's not some stale history book on a shelf full of dust, but it is living and active, that it examines our hearts and our lives, especially for those who will come to the Word of God in faith, believing that it is your Word for us even still today. So God, I pray for those maybe who have sensed in their own hearts a hardness in their heart, maybe they become skeptical towards you. Holy Spirit, I pray you would just awaken faith in their heart, that, yes, they could come to you with their questions and they could, they could bring their intelligence to it, but there has to be a tempering of faith. So I pray for that, Lord, for those that have become hardened in their skepticism. Maybe for others, they're mad because you've taken away from them. And they thought you were a provider, but you seem to be taking at this point. God, I pray they would lift their eyes to a different perspective of what you're doing and showing them and building character in their life today. God, for others, maybe it's they're getting comfortable in their faith and they're becoming complacent. And they know they don't have that passion they once had in their heart. And I pray by the Spirit of God you would awaken that, that you would fan back into flame that passion for you, Jesus. Not to become stale or lukewarm. Not to have just enough religion to get us off the hook and make us not feel guilty. Lord, that's not what we want. We want you. to Touch our hearts, we pray. Touch our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.